Welcome to Every Step Podcast. I'm Christina Weston. And I'm Judith Beck. Every Step is the podcast where career and life meet. With a new guest every episode, we explore the gutsy issues affecting everyone in the workplace. Today, we welcome Jackie Clark. Jackie is a personal wealth and money management expert and the author of Stop Worrying About Money. It's everything you need to get your house in order and take back control. You know, Jackie, over my years of running an executive search uh, company, I dealt with candidates who were making quite large salaries. But the one thing that I noticed is that the more they made, the more they spent. And then when they had a problem in their um, life's journey, like a redundancy, panic would set in because they didn't save and they couldn't support their lifestyles um, for more than a few months. And that made them desperate to get another high paying job. So Jackie, what have you seen as the most common money no-no that people have done over the years? Is there anything that stands out? Yeah, look, absolutely. And Judith, I love that you share that story because not dissimilar to yourself, one of the things I did earlier on in my career was take care of people through outplacement. So when they come to you and they were looking at potentially a redundancy with a big corporate role, I would be contacted in the accounting firm to help people with the transition of their role. So that classic thing where they've sort of uh, been on the treadmill, if you like, and they've been earning more and more money and then they're contemplating what to do now and the anchor, if you like, or the cuffs of the big salary job holds people back from making, you know, the best choices for them. So to to step back from that, I just like the story because it reminds me, and I do write about this in the book actually, is uh, that type of experience in helping people be able to sort of lift up from that. But the three biggest money mistakes that I see people make, the first one is actually doing nothing about money, so basically ignoring it. The second one is actually not understanding people's baseline costs. So people come to me who don't actually know what it costs to open their front door at home. So just no idea what's going out each month. And the third one, um, which changes over different sort of decades, is the wearing and driving your money, which is people tend to um, buy into what's fashionable, what we need to be wearing, and also driving fancy cars. So they're they're, they're the top three mistakes. They're expensive (laughs) mistakes. They are. Very expensive. Most common. You know, that's interesting because... That that's often something I um, noticed, especially in that 30s range, in the 30s range, you know, moving up that corporate ladder, the the need to um, buy the designer clothes and the the fancy cars, that type of thing. And I used to say, have you got, you know, have you have you bought a house? <laughs> like, you know, put, put it into put it into property now because I never interviewed, I wouldn't have a clue when I interviewed executives. And either would the people that interviewed the executives about what the label was on their jacket. And as long as they looked professional and it was nice quality, looked nice, they wouldn't have a clue if you had a $5,000 suit on or a $500 suit. And that did not get you the job. And and bags, you know, handbags and, and briefcases or whatever. And I used to always think that, and I, I, I raised my hand. I was guilty in my thirties. <laughs> like, hello, I re- yes, <laughs> and I wish I had that money back that I spent um, 
on stuff that I might have worn once or and cars stuff, you know, that kind of stuff, because they don't. And especially now they don't go up in value at all. And what a waste. And you get sort of um, talked into things that could be a tax deduction. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm used to telling people what they are. But actually, it goes full circle as well, because the reality is if you're spending money that way, maybe you haven't done the most critical thing, which is set a financial goal. So if we go right back in my 30s, 40s and now in 50s is uh, setting financial goals to me has been the most powerful thing to influence my habits, which is like what are the choices that I'm making as a result of that goal? So if that goal is, as I say, to spend three or six months in Europe or to pay down debt um, or to buy an investment property, I have to make some decisions. They might be sacrifices, but maybe they're for the better. And are they, again, they're aligned with my goals. So all the things that I do, how I work, um, who I spend time with, they're all sort of tied into that. Financial goal settings is one aspect for everyone, but a lot of your decisions have a financial element to them. Yeah, a, a lot of them a lot of them do and a lot of them are driven too by psychological and behavioural issues. So often, you know, to the examples that you were using, people do things to make them look good or to create a perception of something that they're not. But that all comes with a massive cost. Even doing nothing comes at a really, really, really big cost. Yeah. No, that's the thing, Christina. I've certainly seen, look, people ignore cash flow in businesses at their peril. And it's very easy to be good at doing something. You could be the creative, you could be the ideas person, you could be the person who brings the money in. But if you don't have an eye on your bottom line and the actual cash flow in your business, you're unlikely to make your first BAS payment, possibly miss your third one, forget about your PAYG and your superannuation costs for your staff. And before you know it, you're in a whole lot of debt. I see it all the time. That's why most businesses fail as well. Um, but not keeping an eye on the doing nothing about the cash, like it'll all work out thing, doesn't quite work. No, and that I doesn't think, work. you know, the business compared, the business owner compared to, say, the executive earning a salary and wage, um, there's similar issues but different. I think for the executive, they've got the regular income coming in, but what they suffer from in the same way through ignoring it is things like expense creep, which uh, you like you think about how you spent money in your 20s to how you spend money now or even if you sort of compare your decades but in your 20s you think back to and I often use the example of the type of wine that you might have purchased so think back to university days what was the type of wine you were drinking if you were even drinking wine then but let's say you started with a seven or eight dollar bottle of something and then as you matured into your late 20s and had a, started on your career journey, you may have spent $15 on wine. And then as you've got into your 30s, it gets to $30 bottle of wines. In your 40s, it's 40 and there's kind of no end to it. Um, but in oh, some- no, when you get in your 60s, you go back to the $6 bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> the wisdom that we all share. And, that, and that's why I wrote the book was to be able to share my 50 years of money wisdom with people to say, imagine making those choices and what impact they'll have on your goals. And yes, financial goals underpin a lot of goals, but just how significant that impact could be. 
How, how do you get people to pay attention? Because, you know, it's really, it's like no one wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I'm, I'm going to look at my insurance or, hey, I'm going to think about money because they're not, they're not the fun, from a lot of people, they're not the fun things to deal with. I mean, some people obviously enjoy money and finances, but the majority of us don't wake up in the morning and kind of think about those things. How do you engage people in having positive conversations around money um, and meaningful conversations that actually result in good outcomes? Yeah, it's a really good question, Christina. I think one of the best places to start, and I start with this, is trying to understand what your money story is first. So spenders and savers, we're all different, um, but actually understanding what your behaviour to money, where it came from. So think back to when you were growing up, did your parents save money? Were they conservative? Were they spendthrifts? Have you either adopted that behaviour or been so frightened by it that you've changed your habits as well? So I I know, I, I guess I've mentioned goals quite early in our discussion today, but you can't actually really build any sound goal without considering the financial implications of it. So I think that's how you engage people. And in fact, one of the things I'm very focused on is encouraging people in relationships to take responsibility around money matters in their home. And first, you have to sort of understand what your relationship to money is. And again, it's like cash flow, organ or ignore that at your peril. But actually having the time to think through how did I get here? Where would I like to get to? I need to engage in, whether it's uncomfortable or not, I need to engage in a money discussion. And if you're someone in the household who's not paying attention to money, you need to you need to pay attention to it. Because that is yeah. a that represents a significant risk to you now and in the future. And yeah. like something happens to your partner or um, in your life and you're not clear on what all the parameters of that are again so you're ignoring it at your peril so I think Christina maybe it's a bit of carrot and stick around the money thing it's not a sexy conversation but I think in a really positive way it can drive great outcomes when it comes to what your goals or your vision might be for your life for your business for your well-being like I think about our financial well-being is such a significant factor in everything we all do, um, how do you enhance your well-being by just nailing this side of it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I think a, a big problem is in the people that I've seen over the years is that there's this false sense of security. And it kind of goes into this, what you were saying before, Jackie, that um, you, you, from an economical point of view, so if you're a small business and you've got suppliers that you need to pay, there's no point delaying that payment. And, you know, I, like in my businesses that I've had over the years with suppliers or people that, um, you know, owed money, I used to always say to the pay those people when that invoice comes in because it's a false sense of security by you holding it off. Pay your tax when it's due. Pay your, your baths or whatever. Like we always paid that right away because there's no point delaying the inevitable. And it's quite simple. If you've got money coming in, you pay what you owe. And, and it had a two prong effect as well because when you pay your suppliers quickly, you become their best client and they do things for you right away before they'll do it for other people. And so that was especially, and I, I noticed when, um, because we 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 did several um, uh, renovations with offices and things over the years, 
and you paid the trades right away because if you pay the trades right away, they're going to come back tomorrow because trades are one of the one of the um, the groups that are constantly chasing money from people for work that they've done. And if you pay them right away, they love you and they come back, they finish your job. And that that's important for your own business's profitability as well. So I'd see that sort of in businesses false as a security. We see it with individuals as well with things like pay as you go and paying things off, you know, in the future, credit card debt. And it's it it always comes it, it will always it will always catch up with you if you don't have the money. Yeah, if you don't have the money now, you can't afford to buy it. Well, um, I mean that. So, Christina, is that that's actually not how a lot of people operate, though. Absolutely. And what's changed is the flexibility around payment options. Like I talk, you would think back to what I used to call the Harvey Norman, which is when you could walk into a store. And you could buy a whole house full of furniture and not pay for it for 18 months or up to three years. Now we've got Afterpay. I mean, I I could easily click the wrong button on an online purchase and be set up for Afterpay with some type of um, one of the uh, Afterpays. It's not fair to blame Afterpayers in. There's lots of different options now. But you could easily be in a payment arrangement for something where you've got the cash today. But I think it's really important that people get back to being able to extinguish their debts as and when they fall due, but also uh, recognising that the impact of those cash outflows will have on those future decisions that you'd like to be making. But relying on credit is not a good thing. And probably the first thing I focus on with people is actually making sure that we manage credit card debt down to zero, essentially, and start working with what they've got rather than what they might be getting in the future. Yeah, and understanding productive debt versus unproductive debt. Well, that's right. The other thing you think about, um, um, talked about people wearing and driving their money, it's actually really easy to buy expensive clothes. And I think when you're under 30, particularly, you can't maybe afford a house yet, but you can afford a nice car and you can afford nice clothes and handbags and golf clubs, whatever it might be. So uh, it's sort of like that short-termism, I can have this now. But the reality is if you don't lease some super fancy car and you invest that money or save it, what things could look like for you um, down the track could be substantially different. And these are decisions we all need to make. I'm talking to uh, 55-year-old senior executive women who have got significant debt on a home. They've got all the cars leased in the house. There's you know, so much cash going out the door. There's that big clump, if you like, that's committed every month. And there's not a lot of wiggle room when you get mm-hmm. loaded up like that. And this is that sort of expense creep I was talking about. I sort of talked a little bit about the bottle of wine. But it's the same with everything. You think today how many subscriptions you've got. When Netflix was the first on the market, we all eventually got onto Netflix, whereas now I would say most households would have no less than five subscriptions. And I'm talking, you know, you've got your Spotify's, your Stan's, your Optus. I, in fact, I had to take up the Optus subscription this past week so that I could watch the soccer for the games that weren't being televised on seven plus like just extraordinary and i've got to go got a note to go and terminate that subscription after one month but um a lot of people just let these things roll and before you blink if you're not looking at that credit card bill every month closely you'll see there's a whole stream of subscriptions for example going out and that's a real trap we've just done an audit of our all our subscriptions um, it was because one of our credit cards, it bounced because the, it had been a new date and we hadn't done whatever we were meant to do. And I went, 
I didn't even know we had this subscription. Why, why are we paying for this? So we've just done a massive audit and rationalised our music subscriptions and worked out we could get greater efficiencies by managing our storage and our emails a little bit different. And, you know, we've saved ourselves a few a few hundred dollars. But I guess I've I've also grown up, you know, you talk about your money language and, and how you grew up in your family. I've grown up in a family where things were very frugal. I'm, I'm the child of war parents, um, you know, Polish parents that had challenges during the war and grew, grew up very, very poor. So I've kind of grown up with this very frugal, and I think, Judith, you've also grown up with a very kind of frugal mentality. So we're, whilst we did some crazy things in our youth, I've been very, very focused on, you know, money goals. And so it's often hard to put yourself in other people's shoes when your money language is different and understand what motivates other people. I think it's really important to actually put yourself in those shoes and and so that we can support them to make better financial decisions and understand the history of their money language. Actually, it's a really great point too because you think about uh, it's like your money story is a bit like your CV but from childhood. So you think back to like my greatest experience was with my grandparents who were post-war um, in Australia, so post-depression, where they saved everything, including the cardboard of the cereal box, was used as the paper for the business to write the notes on when the calls came in um, for, for Quinton, my grandparents were builders and plumbers so people would ring to get a job done and my grandmother would write that information down on the the Kellogg's um, beautiful packet you know we had bubble and squeak we always had um the meal from the the roast dinner on the Sunday night would then become dinner on the Monday night Tuesday if you were really lucky or fried up with an egg or whatever that's not so much um can that hasn't tradition hasn't continued and when you add a, an Uber Eats uh, into our worlds, the things that we are affluent in Australia, and there are lots of ways to spend. But but coming back to that sort of childhood CV, all the TV shows you watch, all the things that have influenced our habits, um, definitely an important part of the flavour for where we're at today. The question is, what do you need to change? That's exactly. And the thing is, is if you think about you know, the 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 ones that are in their 20s and 30s and everything that they see, they're influenced by a lot more than than what we got influenced. I mean, I remember my my mother would say, you know, that was back in the days when you keeping up with the Joneses. Did you ever hear that? Keeping up with the Joneses. Well, really, the Joneses didn't have any more money than anybody else. They just showed they just showed it off better. But people's views were you had to be a certain way. And now they're seeing everything on social media that they have to look a certain way, have certain wear, certain clothes, that kind of things. And I I understand that when you're in that age group, you're living for today mm-hmm. and you're thinking you only live once, you're only, but I guess I would probably say to people who are in that age, those age ranges now, just do your grocery list. You know, I have the saying, you know, do your grocery list, write it down everything you spend money on because it's not the big things usually, it's the small things that add up. It's those little things that you're spending every day that you could cut out very easily to help you get back on track. And the reason why I say the grocery list, because you come home and you go, how in the heck did I spend, you know, $300 on groceries? And you start looking down and everything's just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And it adds up. And same thing in a small business. You you look at your overheads at the end of the um, month and you go, how could we have possibly spent that much? 
And then you look at the, the, the list and you think, oh, because we spent, you know, money on this stationery and that stationery and this stuff we didn't really need. Yes, that's absolutely right. I think that exercise of understanding what it costs to open your front door at home is really critical. So right absolutely. from the whether it's the mortgage or the rent, the electricity, the council rates, the water rates, then the subscriptions, then your insurance, then um, the food. When you start to acknowledge or work out what all of that is, you work out very quickly then uh, what the opportunity is for saving or what the opportunity or where you need to reconsider where you shop, how you shop, um, what how you plan your meals throughout the week or if indeed you plan at all because we have this huge element of discretionary spend or potential discretionary spend that's shrinking each time this open your front door cost is expanding. So if you're planning a holiday, how do you set aside cash for that? And people tend to forget or they get a bonus and that's where it goes. Because, uh, you know, one of the things I've definitely seen a lot is when people do get bonuses, they tend to, or the classic one is the tax refund is already spent. It's so is the bonus, so is the bonus, so is the pay rise, yeah. so, so is that commission payment, whatever your business model is, yep, it's already spent. No one's ever saying I'm putting that into an investment. <laughs> People are saying, no, that's what, that's my reward. I earned that. Um, the reward is in the planning around the goal that gets you to a place you really want to be rather than just having that tangible thing now that will probably be out of date in no time at all. So. I just mentioned that because I think it's a great point, Judith, around the business and having a review of costs, likewise at home, understanding what it costs to open the front door. And I call that open your front door, but also your baseline costs is actually recognising what they all are. Because until you own that, you can't make any change. That's exactly right. It goes full circle. What do you want to, why do you want to know that? Because you want to know where the flex is where the opportunity, where the trade-offs are, where the essential items are, so that you can challenge yourself to create a bit of space to perhaps create an investment or an income stream that's not dependent on you showing up to an office every day. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it is so important. You know, they say that um, women over 50, there's a big number that increase in homelessness um, yes. in the and, you know, and I wonder if it's because a lot of times you don't know, and I, I know people who don't know exactly what the bills are. And a couple of years ago, I did a home manual, which I call my my house manual, because I, um, often I did like a lot of times I didn't pay attention to what the cost was at the grocery store and stuff like that. And so I did a home manual mainly for the fact that if something happened to one of us, we'd know where is the internet? What's the post? What's the code? What's the password? How much are we spending? What are the subscription? And it was a really interesting. Now we have a manual, home manual. So God forbid anything happens to one of us, but at least if it does, the other person can go to that home manual and go know exactly what it is, where the money's going and where, where it's at. But going through that exercise, to your point, Jackie, finding out subscriptions that we didn't need costs that we were spending that we we really didn't need need to to do anymore and and things like that like and also reevaluating insurance policies because the insurance policies will continue on and they they don't um they keep going up but you could if you get another quote somewhere else you could be saving hundreds and hundreds of dollars by changing your insurance policies over so little things like that 
that I was finding in this long grocery list of expenses. I mean, that's brilliant, Judith. You should patent that. I think that there's a lot of value. And actually, you you open that by talking about homelessness of women, which I think is a really serious issue. And there's a number of reasons or a number of factors that influence that. But the two that probably stand out the most to me are twofold or tenfold, really. Uh, one is that financial literacy is dropping in Australia. So a lot of people are delegating financial responsibility to the point where their own financial literacy is deteriorating. So the first thing that's happening is people aren't actually aware of what the costs are in their household, what I would refer to as baseline costs. So it's important that you don't delegate and you actually are aware. The other thing is if you're not used to having financial conversations, naturally the language about them deteriorates. And so again, how do you rebuild your financial literacy? Well, the main way is to actually contemplate financial decisions. So that's really important. And the other thing is that uh, women typically or women and men are getting divorced in their 40s or certainly a round of divorce tends to occur after people's 40s. And if it's post-children or um, not necessarily with children, but uh, there may be historically men have been a breadwinner, they may take a greater share of the wealth or they may continue to be able to grow wealth after the marriage has broken down. So women are getting a smaller share, like women have less super because they had their child-rearing years out of the workforce. All of these factors are influencing how women become homeless. In fact, one of the um, examples I talk about in my book is uh, one of Sydney's famous chefs, um, his wife is now living in housing commission and it was just an extraordinary tale where they were running the business. He died suddenly uh, and naturally, like again to the conversation we're having with Judith around paying the bills, the bills hadn't been paid. The wash-up of closing the restaurant out and other dealings meant that there was actually not a lot left. And so the, the widow in this case was left to fend for herself essentially without any financial backing. And, and, it, and I think that if in that circumstance, there had been a much greater appreciation of costs that were going out, money that was coming in, and at some point being able to make a decision where I need to set aside something for us for our future, that might not have happened. So it's it's really sad uh, that this has happened, and I think that there is still a significant amount of homelessness coming our way, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think it's not just women. I mean, I think women do have... Uh often take on the response, say, say, delegate the responsibility to their partners. And then, as you said, you know, as a result of a divorce or or a separation or a breakdown or a death, they find themselves drowning um, in knowledge and not having any comprehension or discovering there's so many debts. I've also seen a lot of circumstances where there might be a husband and wife business team and the husband is is the is the he goes out and does the does the work could be a tradie he goes out and does the work and the wife is the bookkeeper and she manages things and then something happens and the wife wasn't onto it or one or the other of the partners has a gambling habit that is undisclosed and then it all just becomes terribly terribly tragic in terms of trying to unravel those kind of scenarios. Yes, and, you know, often where I get involved and I, I do um, go through financial infidelity with people and this is something that we all need to be aware of because fa- financial infidelity occurs in relationships. There can be trust. It just means that somebody spends money without your knowledge. And, you know, it's the first sign is usually when there's a few extra packages arriving at the front door. And if, if you've, as a couple you've set a financial goal, 
and all these packages keep coming, at some point you have to say, hang on a minute, is that what, have we agreed to kind of doing that? Is that in line with what the goals are that we've set? It's not about budgeting somebody down to the, you know, the last dollar, but actually making sure that people's habits are in check and gambling, any form of addiction, um, these are risks. I mean, gambling is probably the biggest one that I see that happens in typically affluent households where a partner has an interest in gambling. And the question is, is there a, is it a Saturday thing where they spend a couple hours putting money on the horses or is it sort of much bigger than that? And it tends, these things tend to grow and influence lifestyle. Uh, and it's important that you get them in check or it, it is upon you to be aware of these things and to call them out and have a really good conversation about money when you start to identify these things happening. So something yeah. just to be careful of is financial infidelity. And it, it maybe sounds worse than it is. It can start as really uh, innocent purchases that maybe fall outside of what we've set as a financial goal as a couple, um, but it can be quite significant. And when people have separate bank accounts and they have um, different credit cards, all of which are kind of off to the side and you don't have any knowledge of, I see those as a, a significant risk to the relationship and, and particularly to your financial security which is something that no doubt uh, is on people's minds. Yeah, absolutely, especially in the age of blended families where people are, you know, two professionals. Um, I've been in, in that situation myself. Two professionals come together with children from other relationships and then you're trying to build a financial future together and this whole being open about money and and if people are making those um, incidental purposes. Oh, I just, I was just on Temple and Webster and I just had to get whatever it was. And before you know it, there's all this stuff turning up. Um, mm. Sometimes that's a symptom of emotional issues, of, of, of other kind of psychological issues around unhappiness that they're trying to get a fix by, by buying stuff. And it's the same with going shopping. You know, you're happy for a moment because you bought all this wonderful stuff and then you might come home and then you're, you're miserable because you realise what you've done. Um, so there are a lot of psychological issues tied up with money. And that's why I think approaching when you become aware of a level of financial infidelity in your relationship, to approach that gently with your partner to try and unpack how we got here and what we could do what other things do we need to address? It's not just about stopping the spending, actually. It's about other things like it may be their genuine happiness or just their overall health. Uh, you know, how do they get support? Yeah. Judith and I talk a lot about getting a mentor. So just in career issues, and it's one of our big themes, it's don't try and do things yourself. Oh. And I guess this is a classic one. You know, how valuable is it to have a money mentor? Yes. Oh, look, couldn't agree more. One of the things that I always focus on is your personal finance village. And I think a money mentor, a coach, an accountant, a lawyer, potentially a financial advisor, these people all form part of your personal finance village. And to be fair, money can be, and, and particularly in blended families, of which I'm in one, it can be really sensitive and incredibly emotional and you think back to at the start of our chat today, talking about your money story and what money behaviours, you know, you might have a partner who has completely different money behaviours to you. Um, and, and so someone, for example, who gambles or, you know, spends 20 bucks a week on the trots or whatever it is, um, what's that, whatever that expression is. So it's bringing all of that together. But if you have a, having a personal finance village is having people around you that can help you make non-emotional decisions about money choices 
But the other thing is to make sure that you have qualified people around you. And, you know, people like Melissa Caddick led her investors down the garden path because she produced this image of a successful professional and had fake qualifications. And I mentioned making sure that people have the right qualifications is make sure you do your homework on the people in your personal finance village. Make sure they have A, the experience and B, the qualifications and C, that you have good rapport with them. It's not okay necessarily just to settle for that mentor or that money manager that your spouse or partner uses. Make sure it's somebody that you can trust that can be independent for you. So somebody who's got your back. It could be a family member as well. So I just mentioned this with maybe a little bit of hesitation, but I think naturally if you're uncomfortable talking about money issues, which let's face it, a lot of people are, so you might naturally go to a family member who is in the financial services industry for a chat. I think that's okay as long as they are appropriately qualified. And that's that they're probably the danger. That's probably yeah. a danger with family marriage. You're so close to them and you think, but, but they said they're qualified and then you don't do the references that you would do as you normally would do because that's my family member and I trust them. And the reality is you almost need to check them out. As, I mean, you need to check them out even more because, you know, you're going to lose the family relationship if if they don't do the right thing by you. But also there's an expectation from the family member, well, you should be dealing with me because I'm your family. But mm. if they don't have qualifications, kind of like, well, you wouldn't go to a doctor for surgery if they didn't have a medical degree. So why would you put your life, your financial life in the hands of someone who hasn't got the qualifications? No, That's right. a good talker. And they need, so I say the family member, what is most important in your personal finance village is having independent advice. So I said non-emotional, but the end is independent advice so that they're not tied or connected up with any particular, for example, the investment they might put you into or whatever it might be, they are independent so that they can help you sort of rise above it, if you like, to make the right decision for you. Yeah. And actually, maybe just to call out here to, a story of someone I met not that long ago who's who had been in the situation where they had a tax advisor who was the advisor to their spouse and they didn't have a great relationship but they were quite successful in their own right this individual and then unfortunately because the relationship wasn't perhaps where it needed to be there was a very bad decision made that cost them a fortune in tax because they didn't get the right advice. And it was almost laziness on behalf of the tax advisor because their relationship was focused on one of the two people in the relationship. They sort of didn't place enough emphasis on the second relationship. And by doing so, they actually made the wrong decision and cost them actually in this particular scenario millions of dollars that they would otherwise not have had to pay in tax and it was just to do with some stock options that came through an executive role so it's important to make sure that you do choose your advisors and you don't settle just for the one that your partner has because it's convenient Um, decide whether you've got a good relationship with them and that they've got your back yeah exactly I mean I remember years ago one of my worst invest investments was and when when I was young um that a boss that I had worked with um, sort of talked us into investing in um, uh, a movie. 
And so it was right after Crocodile Dundee and that yes. success of that movie. So it was double, John claude Van Damme, double impact. Yes, I remember. <laughs> I remember when he came to Australia to film that. Oh, anyway, bombed. And um, and anyway, it was a, but it was a good learning experience for me at, at a young age, investing money into something that, you know, I really didn't think about and I really didn't, you know, um, go to a professional advisor yeah. who who knew more. I, I It was kind of like, I got a great tip for you. Here's a great tip. And if you get in early, you know, you'll, you'll make a lot of money just like Crocodile Dundee did, right? And so you're all, you know, these people, some people can be really good salespeople. And, you know, Melissa Caddick, didn't she um, convince a lot of her friends and family a lot. to check her out? They would have just gone, yeah, 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 yeah. And I was grateful for making that mistake early yes because it set the tone for any investment mm. i never got into any investments so you haven't bought land in the metaverse you haven't bought no. vanity nfts you know i wrap that all up by saying don't invest in something that you don't understand make sure you understand it before you get taken down a path by anyone if you can't understand it then if you can't explain it if you as can't explain it, down, walk away. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, fi- some final thoughts, um, Jackie. We'll start with you. How do we? How do we stop worrying about money? What are the things that we can do to stop worrying about money? It's yeah, a great way to wrap up. Look, I think the main thing is, in terms of stop worrying about money, is actually getting your house in order. That's number one. Get your house in order. I think number two would be setting financial goals. And I think number three is making money a priority for you in the discussions that you have at home in terms of your relationships, not over the relationship, but actually prioritising financial decisions um, in your life, I think will make a big difference to stopping worry. Judith, what about you? Hmm. What's your advice around how we stop worrying about money? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think I think if I was looking back, I'd be going, okay. And sorry, and, you, and read my book. <laughs> <laughs> That's one. number one. That's number one. <laughs> well, at the end of the day, you know, listen to the people who who have the experience and, and who have perhaps made mistakes too so you don't do it again. Um, but if it was me, if I was doing it again, it would be, first of all, pay your house off first. That's your top, that's your top priority. Don't buy things for short-term buzz, you know, that that I, I've got to I've got to buy this because these things are fads. Don't spend money, waste money on fads and things that don't matter. Um I, I personally what what I do, like in my family, is is we have a family budget, but we also had an individual spending allowance that I don't want to know. I don't want to know every dollar that my husband spends money on if he wants to go and spend money on you know um you know surfing magazines or something like that or jet you know that fine spend them and he doesn't want to know whether or not i'm going to go out by the latest <laughs> so it's kind of like have it a have a portion that you can spend that it's it's up to you how you spend it and then you have a home budget which is for the home yeah. And and I think also a limit that if you go over if that from a house point of view if it's a thousand dollars and over let's say that you never spend a certain amount 
um, without discussing it. But you know what your benchmark is. You know what your benchmark is. You set your benchmark. Anything over that, let's have a discussion and we'll talk about it. It's a joint decision. And I think a financial authority in a business, right? It's up to this, whatever. It's really wise, Judith. It's, I think it's brilliant. You would be an outlier, I will say. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the biggest the biggest piece of advice is is don't bury don't bury your head in the sand. I mean, I agree with everything that everybody has said. Don't bury your head in the sand. They can be emotionally challenging conversations to have, and we come you know we come up against a lot of our fears and oh, I should trust that person. I I shouldn't be asking the questions. They might think I I'm questioning them. You've got to let go of all of that and take take responsibility and if it's daunting if it's scary if it's intim- if it's intimidating find a money mentor find somebody in find somebody what would you call it a personal finance village you know find somebody that you can talk to and bounce ideas off that that has the right qualifications that can guide you appropriately mm-hmm. so Jackie Thank you so much. It's been lovely chatting to you today about a challenging, I think it's a challenging conversation for a lot of people. It's easy to sit here and have this conversation, but I think for most people when we start talking about money, it really churns them up and it pushes a lot of buttons for a lot of people. I think these are very important conversations to have. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both for having me. It's been wonderful. For more information about Every Step and our guests, head to everysteppodcast.com. To be notified of new podcasts, please subscribe via your favourite listening platform. And of course, follow us on social media and direct message us to share your ideas about guests or topics.